Welcome to today's podcast from our history series titled Mocha Dick, the killer white whale that inspired Melville to write Moby Dick. I'm your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. His name sounds like a Starbucks creation, but he was anything but a warm and friendly cup of coffee. He was an enormous bull whale that turned on a 235-ton ship and reduced it to splinters in minutes while the terrified crew watched from their small wooden boats. Later, the crew of 20 would turn to cannibalism to survive. This was the whale that became Herman Melville's inspiration for Moby Dick. From 1712 to 1870, the whaling industry in New England supplied the modern world with oil. In Paris, London, and New York, streetlights burned every night using whale oil. The mechanized world ran on it. Mills operated using whale oil, and the lights that kept them open at night were there thanks to the precious fluid. Young men showed up in droves in whaling towns like Nantucket and New Bedford for a chance to go to sea because they sought the adventure, the hardship, and the pay, meager as it was. It was dangerous work, and many never returned. They were victims of storms and lightning and being tossed overboard in heavy seas, of being caught up in harpoon ropes and dragged over the rail screaming, or suffering from exposure or sickness, or of disappearing over the horizon in their waist boat while being taken for a Nantucket sleigh ride by a giant harpoon whale, only to have their tiny boat crushed to splinters by the one-ton tail of an angry, injured whale. Or, as in the case of the Essex, a whaler out of New Bedford in 1820, they could watch in terror from their tiny waist boats as a giant killer white whale turned on their 283-ton ship and crushed it to smithereens within minutes ultimately leaving them adrift and then stranded on a remote island and having to turn to cannibalism to survive. That whale was the inspiration for Melville's Moby Dick. It was an 85-foot-long albino sperm whale that the South Sea sailors had named Mocha Dick. For 20 years, he had terrorized whalers and taken a number of lives. He had been first seen and attacked near the island of Mocha off the coast of Chile in 1810, hence his name Mocha, with Dick being the whaleman's word used when naming a bull whale. This is the story of the whaling ship that finally got him, written by newspaper editor and explorer Jeremiah Reynolds for the New York Knickerbocker magazine in May of 1839, who traveled with the whaling ship Penguin and interviewed the man responsible for the last deadly encounter with Mocha Dick. He writes, We expected to find the island of Santa Maria still more remarkable for the luxuriance of its vegetation than even the fertile soil of Mocha and the disappointment arising from the unexpected shortness of our stay at the latter place was in some degree relieved by prospect of our remaining for several days in safe anchorage at the former. Mocha lies upon the coast of Chile in latitudes 38, 28 degrees south, 20 leagues north of Mono del Bonifacio and opposite the Imperial River, from which it bears west-southwest. During the last century, this island was inhabited by the Spaniards, but it is at present, and has been for some years, entirely deserted. Its climate is mild, with little perceptible difference of temperature between the summer and winter seasons. Frost is unknown on the lowlands, and snow is rarely seen, even on the summits of the loftiest mountains. It was late in the afternoon when we left the schooner, and while we bore up for the north, she stood away for the southern extremity of the island. As evening was gathering around us, we fell in with a vessel which proved to be the same whose boats, a day or two before, we had seen in the act of taking a whale. Aside from the romantic and stirring associations it awakened, there are few objects in themselves more picturesque or beautiful than a whale ship, seen from a distance of three or four miles on a pleasant evening in the midst of the great Pacific, as she moves gracefully over the water, rising and falling on the gentle undulations peculiar to this sea, 
her sails glowing in the quivering light of the fires that flashed from below, and a thick volume of smoke ascending from the midst and curling away in dark masses upon the wind. It requires little effort of the fancy to imagine one's self gazing upon a floating volcano. As we were both standing to the north under easy sail at nine o'clock at night, we had joined company with the stranger. Soon after, we were boarded by his whaleboat, the officer in command of which bore us the compliments of the captain, together with a friendly invitation to partake the hospitalities of his cabin. Accepting, without hesitation, a courtesy so frankly tendered, we proceeded, in company with Captain Palmer on board, attended by the mate of the Penguin, who was on his way to St. Mary's to repair his boat, which had some weeks before been matured in a storm. We found the whaler a large, well-appointed ship, owned in New York, and commanded by such a man as one might expect to find in charge of a vessel of this character, plain, unassuming, intelligent, and well-informed upon all the subjects relating to his peculiar calling. But what shall we say of his first mate, or how describe him? To attempt his portrait by a comparison would be vain, for we have never looked upon his like, and a detailed description, however accurate, would but faintly shadow forth the tout ensemble of his extraordinary figure. He had probably numbered about thirty-five years. We arrived at this conclusion, however, rather from the untamed brightness of his flashing eye than the general appearance of his features, on which torrid sun and polar storm had left at once the furrows of more advanced age, and a tint swarthy as that of the Indian. His height, which was a little beneath the common standard, appeared almost dwarfish, from the immense breadth of its overhanging shoulders, while the unnatural length of the loose, dangling arms which hung from them, and which, when at rest, had least the appearance of ease, parted to his uncouth and muscular frame an air grotesque awkwardness which defies description. He made few pretensions as a sailor, and had never aspired to the command of a ship, but he would not have exchanged the sensations which stirred his blood when steering down upon a school of whales for the privilege of treading as master the deck of the noblest liner that ever traversed the Atlantic. According to the admeasurement of his philosophy, whaling was the most dignified and manly of all pursuits. Of this he felt perfectly satisfied having been engaged in the noble vocation for upward of twenty years, during which period, if his own assertions were to be received as evidence, no man in the American Spermaceti fleet had made so many captures or met with such wild adventures in the exercise of his perilous profession. Indeed, so completely were all his propensities, thoughts, and feelings identified with his occupation, so intimately did he seem acquainted with the habits and instincts of the objects of his pursuit, and so little conversant with the ordinary affairs of life that one felt less inclined to class him in the genus Homo sapiens than as a sort of intermediate something between man and the cetaceous tribe. Soon after the commencement of his nautical career, in order to prove that he was not afraid of a whale, a point which it is essential for the young whaleman to establish beyond question, he offered upon a wager to run his boat bows on against the side of an old bull, leap from the cuddy to the back of the fish, sheet his lance home, and return on board in safety. This feat, daring as it may be considered, he undertook and accomplished, at least so it was chronicled in his log, and he was ready to bear witness on oath to the veracity of the record. But his conquest of the redoubtable Mocha Dick unquestionably formed the climax of his life exploits. Before we enter into the particulars of this triumph, which, through their valorous representative, conferred so much honor upon the Lancers of Nantucket, it may be proper to inform the reader who and what Mocha Dick was, and thus give him a posthumous introduction to one who was, in his day and generation, so emphatically among fish the stout gentlemen of his latitudes. 
This renowned monster, who had come off victorious in a hundred fights with his pursuers, was an old bull whale of prodigious size and strength. From the effect of age, or more probably from a freak of nature, as exhibited in the case of the Ethiopian albino, a singular consequence had resulted. He was white as wool. Instead of projecting his spout obliquely forward and puffing with a short convulsive effort, accompanied by a snorting noise, as usual with his species, he flung the water from his nose in a lofty, perpendicular, expanded volume at regular and somewhat distant intervals, its expulsion producing a continuous roar like that vapor struggling from the safety valve of a powerful steam engine. Viewed from a distance, the practiced eye of the sailor only could decide that the moving mass which constituted this enormous animal was not a white cloud sailing along the horizon. On the spermaceti whales, barnacles are rarely discovered, but upon the head of this lucis naturae they had clustered until it became absolutely rugged with the shells. In short, regard him as you would, he was a most extraordinary fish, or in the vernacular of Nantucket, a genuine old sog of the first water. Opinions differ as to the time of his discovery. It is settled, however, that previous to the year 1810, he had been seen and attacked near the island of Mocha. Numerous boats are known to have been shattered by his immense flukes or ground to pieces in the crush of his powerful jaws. And on one occasion, it is said that he came off victorious from a conflict with the crews of three English whalers, striking fiercely at the last of the retreating boats at the moment it was rising from the water in its hoist up to the ship's davits. It must not be supposed, howbeit, that through all this desperate warfare our leviathan passed scatheless, a back serried with irons, and from fifty to a hundred yards of line trailing in his wake, sufficiently attested that, though unconquered, he had not proved invulnerable. From the period of Dick's first appearance, his celebrity continued to increase until his name seemed naturally to mingle with the salutations which whalemen were in the habit of exchanging in their encounters upon the broad Pacific, the customary interrogatories almost always closing with, Any news from Mocha Dick? Indeed, nearly every whaling captain who rounded the Cape Horn, if he possessed any professional ambition, or valued himself on his skill in subduing the monarch of the seas, would lay his vessel along the coast in the hope of having an opportunity to try the muscle of this doughty champion who was never known to shun his assailants. It was remarked, nevertheless, that the old fellow seemed particularly careful as to the portion of his body which he exposed to the approach of this boat-steerer, generally presenting by some well-timed maneuver his back to the harpooner and dexterously evading every attempt to plant an iron under his fin or a spade on his small. Though naturally fierce, it was not customary with Dick, while unmolested, to betray a malicious disposition. On the contrary, he would sometimes pass quietly round a vessel and occasionally swim lazily and harmlessly among the boats when armed with full craft for the destruction of his race. But this forbearance gained him little credit, for if no other cause of accusation remained to them, his foes would swear they saw a lurking deviltry in the long, careless sweep of his flukes. Be this as it may, nothing is more certain than that all the indifference vanished with the first prick of the harpoon, while cutting the line and a hasty retreat to their vessel were frequently the only means of escape from destruction left to his discomfited assaulters. The whaler now resumed. I will not weary you, said he, with the uninteresting particulars of a voyage to Cape Horn. Our vessel, as capital a ship as ever left the little island of Nantucket, was finally manned and commanded as well as thoroughly provided with every requisite for the particular service in which she was engaged. 
I may here observe, for the information of such among you as are not familiar with these things, that soon after a whale ship from the United States is fairly at sea, the men are summoned aft. Then boats' crews are selected by the captain and first mate, and a shipkeeper at the same time is usually chosen. The place to be filled by this individual is an important one, and the person designated should be a careful and sagacious man. His duty is, more particularly, to superintend the vessel while the boats are away, in chase of fish, and at these times the cook and steward are perhaps his only crew. His station on these occasions is at the masthead, except when he is wanted below to assist in working the ship. While aloft, he is to look out for whales, and also to keep a strict and tireless eye upon the absentees in order to render them immediate assistance, should emergency require it. Should the game rise to windward of their pursuers, and they be too distant to observe personal signs, he must run down the jib. If they rise to leeward, he should haul up the spanker, continuing the little black signal flag at the mast, so long as they remain on the surface. When the school turn flukes and go down, the flag is to be struck and again displayed when they are seen to ascend. When circumstances occur which require the return of the captain on board, the colors are to be hoisted at the mizzen peak. A shipkeeper must further be sure that provisions are ready for the men on their return from the chase and the drink be amply furnished in the form of a bucket of switchel. No whale, no switchel is frequently the rule. But I am inclined to think that, whale or no whale, a little rum is not amiss after a lusty pull. I have already said that little of interest occurred until after we had doubled Cape Horn. We were now standing in upon the coast of Chile before a gentle breeze from the south that bore us along almost imperceptibly. It was a quiet and beautiful evening, and the sea glanced and glistened in the level rays of the descending sun with a surface of waving gold. The western sky was flooded with amber light, in the midst of which, like so many islands, floated immense clouds of every conceivable brilliant dye, while far to the northeast, looming darkly against a paler heaven, rose the conical peak of Mocha. The men were busily employed in sharpening their harpoons, spades, and lances for the expected fight. The lookout at the masthead, with cheek on his shoulder, was dreaming of the dangers he had passed instead of keeping watch for those which were to come, while the captain paced the quarterdeck with long and hasty stride, scanning the ocean in every direction with a keen, expectant eye. All at once he stopped fixed his gaze intently for an instant on some object to leeward that seemed to attract it, and then, in no very conciliating tone, hailed the masthead. "'Both ports shut!' he exclaimed, looking aloft and pointing backward, where a long, white, bushy spout was rising about a mile off the larboard bow, against the glowing horizon. "'Both ports shut! I say, you leaden-eyed lubber! Nice, lazy son of a sea-cook you are! And for a lookout! Come down, sir! There she blows!' "'Sperm whale! Old Sog, sir!' said the man in a deprecatory tone as he descended from his nest in the air. It was at once seen that the creature was companionless, but as a lone whale is generally an old bull, and of unusual size and ferocity, more than ordinary sport was anticipated, while unquestionably more than honorary honor was to be won from its successful issue. The second mate and I were ordered to make ready for pursuit, and now commenced a scene of emulation and excitement, of which the most vivid description would convey but an imperfect outline unless you have been a spectator or an actor on a similar occasion. Line tubs, water kegs, and wave poles were thrown hurriedly into the boats. The irons were placed in the racks, and the necessary evolutions of the ship gone through with a quickness almost magical, and this too amidst what to a landsman would have seemed inextricable confusion with perfect regularity and precision, the commands of the officers being all but forestalled by the enthusiastic eagerness of the men. 
In short time, we were as near the object of our chase as it was considered prudent to approach. Back the main topsail, shouted the captain. There she blows, there she blows. There she blows, cried the lookout, who had taken the place of his sleepy shipmate, raising the pitch of his voice with each announcement until it amounted to a downright yell. Right ahead, sir. Spout as long and thick as the mainyard. Stand by to lower, exclaimed the captain. All hands, cook, steward, cooper. Every damn one of you, stand by to lower. An instantaneous rush from all quarters of the vessel answered this appeal, and every man was at his station, almost before the last word had passed the lips of the skipper. Lower away! And in the moment the keel splashed in the water. Follow down the cruise! Jump in, my boys! Ship the crotch! Line your oars! Now pull as if the devil was in your wake! Were the successive orders as the men slipped down the ship's side, took their places in the boats, and began to give way. The second mate had a little advantage of me in starting. The stern of his boat grated against the bows of mine. At the instant I grasped my steering oar and gave the word to shove off. One sweep from my arm, and we sprang foaming in his track. Now came the tug of war. To become a first-rate oarsman, you must understand, requires a natural gift. My crew were not wanting in the proper defecation. Every mother's son of them pulled as if he had been born with an oar in his hand. And as they stretched every sinew for the glory of darting the first iron, it did my heart good to see the boys spring. At every stroke, the tough blades bent like willow wands and quivered like tempered steel in the warm sunlight as they sprang forward from the tension of the retreating wave. At the distance of half a mile, and directly before us, lay the object of our emulation and ambition, heaving his huge bulk in unwieldy gamboles as though totally unconscious of our approach. There he blows! An old bull by Jupiter! Eighty barrels, boys! Waiting to be towed alongside! Long and quick! Shoot ahead! Now she feels it! Wasteboat could never beat us. Now she feels the touch. Now she walks through it. Again. Now. Such were the broken exclamations and adjurations with which I cheered my rowers to their toil. As with renewed vigor, I plied my long steering oar. In another moment, we were alongside our competitor. The shivering blades flashed forward and backward like sparks of light. The waters boiled under our prow, and the trenched waves closed, hissing and whirling in our wake as we swept, I might almost say, were lifted onward in our arrowy course. We were coming down upon our fish, and we could hear the roar of his spouting above the rush of the sea when my boat began to take the lead. Now, my fine fellows, I exclaimed in triumph, now we'll show them our stern, only spring. Stand ready, harpooner, but don't dart till I give the word. Carry me on, and his name is Dennis, cried the boat steerer in a confident tone. We were perhaps a hundred feet in advance of the waste boat, and within fifty of the whale, about an inch of whose hump only was to be seen above the water, when, heaving slowly into view a pair of flukes some eighteen feet in width, he went down. The men lay on their oars. There he blows again, cried the tub oarsman, as a lofty perpendicular spout sprang into the air a few furlongs away on the starboard side. Presuming from his previous movement, that the old fellow had been gallied by other boats and might probably be jealous of our purpose, I was about ordering the men to pull away as softly and silently as possible when we received fearful intimation that he had no intention of balking our inclination or even yielding us the honor of the first attack. Lashing the sea with his enormous tail until he threw about him a cloud of surf and spray, he came down at full speed. Jaws on with the determination, apparently, of doing battle in the earnest. 
as he drew near with his long curved back looming occasionally above the surface of the billows. We perceived that it was white as the surf around him and the men stared aghast at each other as they uttered in a suppressed tone the terrible name of Mocha Dick. One might have supposed the recognition mutual, for no sooner was his vast square head lifted from the sea than he charged down upon us, scattering the billows into spray as he advanced, and leaving a wake of foam a rod in width from the violent lashing of his flukes. He's making for the bloody water, cried the men, as he cleft his way toward the very spot where he had been approached. Here, harpooner, steer the boat and let me dart, I exclaimed as I leaped into the bows. May the Ghanis eat me if he dodges us this time, though he were beals above himself. Pull for the red water. As I spoke, the fury of the animal seemed suddenly to die away. He paused in his career and lay passive on the waves, with his arcing back thrown up like the ridge of a mountain. The old sog's lying too, I cried exultingly. Spring, boys, spring now, and we have him. All my clothes, tobacco, everything I've got shall be yours. Only lay me alongside that whale before another boat comes up. My Grimke, what a hump. Only look at the irons in his back. Pull! Now, boys, if you care about seeing your sweethearts and wives in old Nantuck, if you love Yankee land, if you love me, pull ahead, won't ye? Now then, to the thwarts. Lay back, my boys. I feel ye, me hearties. Give her the touch. Only five seas off. Not five seas off. One minute. Half minute more. Softly. No noise. Softly with your oars. That will do. And as the words were uttered, I raised the harpoon above my head, took a rapid but no less certain aim, and sent it hissing deep into his thick white side. Stem all! Put your lives! I shouted. For at that instant the steel quivered in his body. The wounded leviathan plunged his head beneath the surface, and whirling around with great velocity, smote the sea violently with fin and fluke in a convulsion of rage and pain. Our little boat flew dancing back from the seething vortex around him, just in season to escape being overwhelmed or crushed. He now started to run. For a short time, the line rasped, smoking, roughed the chocks. A few turns round the loggerhead, then secured, and with oars apeak and bows tilted to the sea, we went leaping onward in the wake of the tethered monster. Vain were all his struggles to break from our hold. The strands were too strong, the barbed iron too deeply fleshed to give way, so that whether he essayed to dive or breach or dash madly forward, the frantic creature still felt that he was held in check. At one moment, in impotent rage, he reared his immense blunt head covered with barnacles high above the surge, while his jaws fell together with a crash that almost made me shiver. Then the upper outline of his vast form was dimly seen, gliding amidst showers of sparkling spray, while streaks of crimson on the white surf that boiled in his track told that the shaft had been driven home. By this time the whole school was about us, and spouts from a hundred spiracles, with a roar that almost deafened us, were raining on every side, while in the midst of a vast surface of chafing sea, might be seen the black shapes of the rampant herd, tossing and plunging like a legion of maddened demons. The second and third mates were in the very center of this appalling commotion. At length, Dick began to lessen his impetuous speed. Now, my boys, cried I, haul me on, wet the line, your second oarsman as it comes in. Haul away, shipmates. Why the devil don't you haul? Leeward side, leeward, I tell you. Don't you know how to approach a whale? The boat brought fairly up upon his broadside as I spoke, and I gave him the lance just under the shoulder blade. At this moment, just as the boat's head was laid off, and I was straightening for the second lunge, my lance, which I had boned in the piercing cry from the boat steerer, drew my attention quickly aft, and I saw the waste boat, or more properly, a remaining fragment of it, falling through the air and underneath, 
the dusky forms of the struggling crew grasping at the oars or clinging to portions of the wreck, while a pair of flukes descending in the midst of the confusion fully accounted for the catastrophe. The boat had been struck and shattered by a whale. Good heaven, I exclaimed with impatience, and in a tone which I fear showed me rather mortified at the interruption than touched with proper feeling for the sufferers. Good heavens, hadn't they sense enough to keep out of the red water, and I must lose this glorious prize through their infernal stupidity? This was the first outbreak of my selfishness. But we must not see them drown, boys, I added upon the instant. Cut the line! The order had barely passed my lips when I caught sight of the captain, who had seen the accident from the quarterdeck, bearing down with oar and sail to the rescue. Hold on, I thundered, just as the knife's edge touched the line for the glory of old Nantak. Hold on, the captain will pick them up, and Mocha Dick will be ours after all. This affair occurred in half the interval I have occupied in the relation of it. In the meantime, with the exception of a slight shudder, which once or twice shook his ponderous frame, Dick lay perfectly quiet upon the water. But suddenly, as though goaded into exertion by some fiercer pang, he started from his lethargy with apparently augmented power. Making a leap toward the boat, he darted perpendicularly downward, hurling the after oarsman, who was helmsman at the time, ten feet over the quarter, as he struck the long steering oar in his descent. The unfortunate seaman fell with his head forward just upon the flukes of the whale as he vanished and was drawn down by the suction of the closing waters as if he had been a feather. After being carried to a great depth, as we inferred from the time he remained below the surface, he came up, panting and exhausted, and was dragged on board amidst the hearty congratulations of his comrades. By this time, 200 fathoms of line had been carried spinning through the chocks with an impetus that gave hack and steam the water cast upon it. Still, the gigantic creature bored his way downward with undiminished speed. Coil after coil went over and was swallowed up. There remained but three flakes in the tub. Cut, I shouted. Cut quick or he'll take us down. But as I spoke, the hissing line flew with trebled velocity through the smoking wood, jerking the knife he was in the act of applying to the heated strands out of the hand of the boat steerer. The boat rose on end, and her bows were buried in an instant. A hurried ejaculation at once shriek and prayer rose to the lips of the bravest. When unexpected mercy, the whizzing cord lost its tension, and our light bark, half filled with water, fell heavily back on her keel. A tear was in every eye, and I believe every heart bounded with gratitude at this unlooked-for deliverance. Overpowered by his wounds, and exhausted by his exertions and the enormous pressure of the water above him, the immense creature was compelled to turn once more upward for a fresh supply of air. And upward he came, indeed, shooting twenty feet of his gigantic length above the waves by the impulse of his ascent. He was not disposed to be idle. Hardly bad we succeeded in bailing out our swamping boat, when he again darted away, as it seemed to me with renewed energy. For a quarter of a mile we parted the opposing waters as though they had offered no more resistance than air. Our game then abruptly brought to and lay as if paralyzed, his massive frame quivering and twitching as if under the influence of galvanism. I gave the word to haul on, and seizing a boat spade, as we came near him, drove it twice into his small, no doubt partially disabling by the vigor and certainty of the blows. Wheeling furiously around, he answered this salutation by making a desperate dash at our boat's quarter. We were so near him that to escape the shock of his onset by any practical maneuver was out of the question. But at the critical moment, when we expected to be crushed by the collision, his power seemed to give way. The fatal lance had reached the seat of life. His strength failed him in mid-career, and sinking quietly beneath our keel, grazing it as he wallowed along, he rose again a few rods from us on the side opposite that where he went down. 
Lay around, my boys, and let us set on him, I cried, for I saw his spirit was broken at last. But the lance and spade were needless now. The work was done. The dying animal was struggling in a whirlpool of bloody foam, and the ocean far around was tinted with crimson. Stem all, I shouted, as he commenced running impetuously in a circle, beating the water alternately with his head and flukes, and smiting his teeth ferociously into their sockets with a crashing sound in the strong spasms of dissolution. Stem all, or we shall be stove! As I gave the command, a stream of black clotted gore rose in a thick spout above the expiring brute and fell in a shower around, bedouin, or rather drenching us with a spray of blood. There's the flag, I exclaimed. There, thick as tar, stern, every soul of you. He's going in his flurry, and the monster, under the convulsive influence of his final paroxysm, flung his huge tail into the air, and then for the space of a minute thrashed the waters on either side of him with quick and powerful blows. The sound of the concussions resembling that of rapid discharge of artillery. He then turned slowly and heavily on his side, and lay a dead mass upon the sea, through which he had so long ranged a conqueror. He's fit up at last, I screamed at the very top of my voice. Hurrah! And snatching off my cap, I sent it spinning aloft, jumping at the same time from thwart to thwart like a madman. We now drew alongside our floating spoil, and I seriously questioned if the brave Commodore, who first and so nobly broke the charm of British invincibility by the capture of the Guerriere, felt a warmer rush of delight as we beheld our national flag waving over the British ensign in assurance of his victory than I did as I leaped upon the quarterdeck of Dick's back planted my waif pole in the midst and saw the little canvas flag that tells so important and satisfactory a tale to the whaleman, fluttering above my hard-earned prize. The captain and second mate, each of whom had been fortunate enough to kill his own fish, soon after pulled up and congratulated me on my capture. From them I learned the particulars of the third mate's disaster. He had fastened, and his fish was sounding, when another whale suddenly rose, almost directly beneath the boat, and with a single blow of his small, absolutely cut it in twain, flinging the bows, and those who occupied that portion of the fail fabric rendered insensible or immediately killed by the shock. Two of the crew sank without a struggle, while a third, unable in his confusion to disengage himself from the flakes of the tow line with which he had become entangled, was, together with the fragment to which the warp was attached, borne down by the harpooned whale and was seen no more. The rest, some of them severely bruised, were saved from drowning by the timely assistance of the captain. To get the harness on Dick was the work of an instant, and as the ship, taking every advantage of a light breeze which had sprung up within the last hour, had stood after us, and was now but a few rods distant, we were soon under her stern. The other fish, both of which were heavy fellows, lay floating near, and the tackle being affixed to one of them without delay. All hands were soon busily engaged in cutting in. Mocha Dick was the longest whale I've ever looked upon. He measured more than seventy feet from the noddle to the tips of his flukes, and yielded one hundred barrels of clear oil, with a proportionate quantity of head matter. It may emphatically be said that the scars of his old wounds were near his new, for not less than twenty harpoons did we draw from his back, the rusted mementos of many a desperate re-encounter. The mate was silent. His yarn was reeled off. His story was told, and with far better tact than is exhibited by many a modern order, he had the modesty and discretion to stop with its termination. In response, a glass of Oh Be Joyful went merrily round, and this tribute having been paid to courtesy, the vanquisher of Mocha Dick was unanimously called upon for a song, too sensible and too good-natured to wait for a second solicitation. When he had the power to oblige, he took a long pull at the grog as an appropriate overture to the occasion, and then, in a deep, sonomous tone, gave us a wailing ballad. We hope you enjoyed the final part of Mocha Dick. To hear our other podcasts, please visit us at www 
1001storiespodcast.com. We also enjoy and appreciate your feedback at 1000storiespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>